0: Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather around your word uh, this morning, and we pray that you would soften our hearts by your spirit. We pray that today we would indeed hear your voice, and we pray that we would listen and take to heart uh, what you have to say to us. We ask that your spirit will be strengthening me to preach your word rightly and in his power. And that he would be at work in each one of our hearts, causing us to respond rightly uh, to the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can remember what you were doing on Boxing Day ten years ago. Let me give you a hint. That was the day when the terrible tsunami struck our region. Now do you remember it? Yeah, yeah. No one was ready for it, wasn't it? No one was prepared. The only warning people had was when they saw the sea receding from the coast. When the tide suddenly went out, long way out, That was a sign the tsunami was about to strike. And those who heeded the warning, they ran up to higher ground. Those who stayed on the shore to see what would happen, or those who went to collect fish from the exposed seabed, would have been swept away. The psalm that we are looking at today contains a warning. It's a serious warning. It's not a warning written to people outside the church. It's actually a warning written to people inside. It's a warning for God's people. And it's a warning that we are to take to heart. And if we do so, we will be saved through it. And if we don't, we will be destroyed. The warning, however, comes at the end of the psalm. The psalm deals with a positive first. It gives us some positive encouragements before we get to the warnings because we see how good it is to be one of God's people. We're called upon to sing to him. We're called upon to worship him. Uh, We are shown the reasons why we should do that. And then we are given this big warning. Psalm 95 is written by David. Uh, the Greek translation of the psalm tells us this, and it's confirmed by the New Testament book of Hebrews. But the emphasis here is not on the Davidic suffering or Davidic kingship. It's not a psalm that speaks primarily about the coming of the Messiah, like most Davidic psalms. It's a psalm that David wrote for the people of Israel to say to each other, to encourage each other to sing to God with joy, to encourage each other to worship Him in reverence, and to warn each other of the dangers of falling away. And so if you look at the Psalm, you look at the structure of the Psalm, you can see that verse one and two are a a call to sing joyfully to the Lord. Verse three to five are the reasons for it. And then in verse six we have another call, a call to worship the Lord. And then in verse seven we have the reason for it. And then the last part of verse seven begins the second the last the third part of the Psalm, which is that warning the call to obedience. And so we're going to look at each of those three sections in turn, and you'll see them on your outline. Well, the first call in the Psalm is a call to the people of Israel, to each other, to sing to Yahweh. Verse 1 Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Are there a number of places in the Old Testament where Yahweh is called the rock? Uh, generally linked to the fact that he is a refuge, that he is a place of safety. David, who penned this psalm, knew that personally God was his rock. He writes elsewhere in Psalm 18, I'll just read it to you. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You, You get the picture, isn't it? But in this psalm, David calls upon God's people... And God's people who sing this psalm call upon each other to acknowledge God as their rock. The rock of their salvation. For just like God is that solid rock that saved David from Saul, he was his salvation. God is that solid rock that saved Israel. He saved Israel out of Egypt when they were slaves there. He saved them from starvation and dehydration in the desert when they were wandering. He saved them from the Philistines, their enemies, when they were first in the promised land. God was the rock of their salvation. And as David led Israel in singing this psalm, so the Lord Jesus leads us. Jesus knew his heavenly Father as the rock of his salvation. He was the faithful God who saved him. How did he save him? He raised him from the dead. And he teaches us to know about God in that way as well. He is the faithful, dependable rock who saved us. He saved us from sin and death and hell by giving his son to die on the cross for us. To pay the punishment for our sins on our behalf. He will save us from death by raising us up on that last day when Jesus returns. And we can trust Him to do that because He is the faithful, dependable, solid rock. And in Him, we are secure. And so because of that, we rejoice. We've got security, man. And we can say to each other in the words of the psalm: Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving, verse 2, and make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was usually either in heaven or where the tabernacle was. The Psalms talking about the latter, isn't it? In the New Testament, the presence of God is still in heaven. But what replaces the tabernacle as the, as the place where we meet God on earth is Jesus himself, isn't it? So when we come to God in Jesus, we we do so knowing that he is our great high priest who really is in the presence of God in heaven. And we come to God through Jesus. By faith in Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we come to God. And so we call each other. Come to God. Approach God through Jesus. With thanksgiving and joy. Notice the singing here. Joyful noise. It's vibrant. It's vigorous. Right? It's enthusiastic, it's, it's energetic, it's wholehearted, it's passionate. Why? Because we're singing about the rock of our salvation. This is so good to sing about. So, We should sing like that, isn't it? Right? We should, really should. We, we should sing in a way that reflects the words that we're singing. Right? Now, of course, we don't want to manipulate people's emotions by musical style or hype people up with meaningless phrases repeated over and over again. No, of course not. We must sing words that have deep and significant meaning. Me- words that point people to Jesus as the rock. That point people to the gospel that saves us. And we must let those words be so meaningful to us that, we- that it drives the way we sing them. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And why should we approach God with this joyful singing? Well, we already know that He is the rock of our salvation, but here's some more. Verse 3 For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the height of the mountains are His also, the sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. We, We sing joyfully to the Lord because He really is God. Yahweh really is God. He is greater than every spiritual being, every ruler, every false god. He's not just the god of the mountains, the god of the seas, the ruler of the depths of the earth. It's all His. In fact, He's the one who made everything. He's the one who holds the whole world in His hands. That is, he, He rules everything. The whole creation, from the depths of the earth, to the peaks of the mountains, from the sea to the dry land, is made by God, is ruled by God. And if Yahweh is the creator and ruler of all, well, then Israel has got every reason to rejoice. Because that God, the one true God, the one who made everything, the one who rules everything, is their God. The God who has come to their nation and made them His own. And their God is the true God. Wow! Isn't that great? And as Christians, this, this, this from points us to Jesus, isn't it? Remember what Colossians says? He is the in, image of the invisible God, the firstborn that is the ruler of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And so like Israel was called upon to sing to Yahweh, then, well, Christians are called to sing to Jesus. He's the creator, he's the ruler of all. And if Jesus is the ruler of all things, he's the creator of all things, then we have every reason to rejoice the one true living God, the real God who created everything, has come to us that first Christmas. And that God has made us His very own. And if He loves us, then neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from His love because he made it and he rules it all our oh, god's a true god and that is so good because we belong to him and so that brings us to the second call a call to worship in verse 6 oh come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the lord our maker a number of words in the in the in the Bible that are translated worship in English, and, and the one translated worship here is, is the word for bow down or crouch down or kneel or prostrate oneself. It's speaking of humility, of servitude, of reverence, of trembling before someone much greater than ourselves. And that is how we're to treat God, isn't it? That's how we're to approach God. In the Old Testament times, they worshipped God at the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, jesus said in john 4 the time will come when we will worship not tied to a specific place but in spirit and in truth it's not about whether we meet in a cathedral or in a hall or in a club or in a home jesus is where we meet god remember in john 1 the word became flesh and tabernacled among us we saw that on christmas day Destroy this temple, Jesus said in John 2, and I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about the temple of his body. We experience God's presence. We kneel before God, our maker. We bow before him. We worship him in Jesus. We prostrate ourselves before him in spirit and in truth. Christian worship is when the spirit enables us to submit to Jesus and his truth. Real worship is about about how we treat Jesus, isn't it? Real worship is spirit enabled, Christ focused. It's expressed in obedience, expressed in humility and awe before the Lord Jesus, listening to what he has to say, and determined to obey. Do we bow our hearts before Jesus and honor him as Lord? Do we have hearts that are humble and contrite and tremble at his word? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. For, verse 7, he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isn't that wonderful? We worship not in order to become God's people, but because we are. He is our maker. Yahweh was Israel's maker who saved his people from slavery in Egypt and formed them as a nation. He was Israel's shepherd who led them and guarded them and guarded them and protected them as they traveled through the desert as his people. And Jesus, Yahweh made flesh, he is our maker. He's the one who has saved us from slavery to sin and made us his new covenant people. And he is our shepherd who leads us and nourishes us and protects us. He is our good shepherd who gave his life for us, his sheep. And because of who he is and what he has done, we worship him. We wait upon his word. And friends, if we are a worshiping people that is so, so clearly expressed in the way we listen, because if jesus is our king then the one thing we must do is listen to what he says and if true worship is bowing the knee to jesus if it's about having a heart that is humble and contrite and trembling at his word then we must listen to god's word and obey him which brings us to the third section and that the and the warning that the spirit gives us from the last part of verse 7 listen to what he says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at meribah as on the day at massa in the wilderness now i want you to keep a finger or better still keep some bit of paper in psalm 95 Right, and come back with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. That's um, Exodus 17, page 59, if you're using the big green dot Bibles. On The yellow Bible is 71 in the yellow dot Bible. Okay, We've just done a series in Exodus, so this is probably familiar to you. But Exodus 17, uh, and we see here what the Psalm 95 is referring to. Uh, The people of Israel had recently been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They'd been brought through the Red Sea. They were now in the desert, and they were hungry, and God had just started giving them manna, uh, supernatural food to eat. And this is what happens. Chapter 17. I'll read from verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Then the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me almost. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name Massa and Meribah because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, "Is the Lord among us or not?" Now, what was the problem with the Israelites? You can understand them wanting water, isn't it? They were thirsty. But instead of trusting God to provide for them, they started quarreling with Moses. Remember, they had just been rescued in the most dramatic way from Egypt. They had just been given manna from heaven to eat. God was looking after them. Could there be any doubt about that? Well, apparently so. And notice what they said to Moses in verse 3. Why did you... Bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst. As if God were out of the picture. And if he is there, then we must force his hand. They need water, they need God to arrange it for them. If he's slow to provide, they're going to force his his hand and say, Is God among us or not? Are we really his people? If he's really here, let him give us water. Let him prove himself. Let's test God. See if he passes the test. See if he's really what he says he is. See if he can give us what we want. Israel was sent to the desert for God to test them. And instead they wanted to test God. A perfectly inappropriate and presumptuous thing for a human being to do. And God would take none of it. Come back to the psalm. Come back to the psalm. Hear what he says. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to proof, though they had seen my work, they had seen the exodus, they had seen God save them with mighty signs and wonders, they knew God was their Savior, and they still failed to trust Him. And they became like Pharaoh whom they left, didn't they? They hardened their hearts. And brothers and sisters, what about us? We have experienced an even greater rescue than the rescue from Egypt. We have seen Jesus Christ, God made flesh, come to earth at Christmas. We have seen Him save His people from their sin by dying for us. We have seen Him rise from the dead as the Lord of all. And we have seen that in our own We have seen a far bigger rescue than Israel saw coming out of the exodus. We have seen God's work. Will we test God as well? Or will we trust Him? Will we complain when things aren't going the way we want? Or we will trust in His faithfulness to see us through? That incident of... Meribah and Masa was the first of a long string of rebellions in the desert. And God was was disgusted with them. He says in verse 10 For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. God's rest there was enjoying the peace and safety of the promised land. And that generation, that generation who kept on complaining and rebelling and failing to obey God's word, they missed out on that rest. God made them wander in the desert for 40 years until that entire generation was wiped out. And then and only then did he bring Israel into the promised land. For ancient Israel, rest was being in that land where God was going to bless them. But that wasn't the real rest. That's just a picture, a pointer to the real thing. And the real thing was still to come. The ultimate rest is being in the new creation. Enjoying God forever. In the new heaven and new earth. That's what the land was pointing forward to. And friend, the friends, the, the, the promise of that rest still stands. We are still looking forward to it. And so the warning about missing out on that rest also stands. Turn with me please to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, which we read in our New Testament reading earlier. Hebrews 3 and 4. If you're using the Bible with the green dot, It's on page 1002. And if you're using the Bible with the yellow dot, it's on page... Someone? 1204. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7, the writer of the Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. And he says to the people of his generation, thousand years later... He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear in his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see? And then he quotes the rest of the psalm. That psalm that was written for Israel in David's time, the Holy Spirit continued to use to warn and speak to the people of the time of the writers of the Hebrews, the Christians, and so the writer of the Hebrews goes on in verse 12. He says, take care, brothers. Take care. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Look out for each other. Look out for each Make sure that there isn't an unbelieving heart among you. This is not just an a, a individual warning. It's, it's a corporate one. It's Help each other one. And so verse 13 he says, look, exhort each other every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's something we've got to keep on doing. We've got to keep on helping each other, telling each other, don't let your heart be hardened. Help each other push on. Those who, those who refused to listen to God in ancient Israel or didn't trust Him, who disobeyed, they, they weren't allowed to enter the land. Yet, they were known as the people of God. They were the ones, verse 16, who who left Egypt with Moses, led by him. And yet, verse 17, they were the ones whose bodies fell in the wilderness. They did not enter his rest, verse 18, because they were disobedient. They did not enter his rest, verse 19, because of unbelief. And the writer of the Hebrews tells the believers in his day, and the Spirit says to us, Watch out! Those Israelites failed to trust God. They turned away from Him, even though they came that close to entering the Promised Land. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to any of us. We must keep trusting God. We must keep following Jesus. And we must help each other do that. If we don't, then we will come under God's judgment. And the stakes now, they're even big, even higher, aren't they, than the stakes in those days. The rest we now fail to enter is the real one, the promised land, heaven itself. And so in verse 11 of chapter four, The writer of the Hebrews says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's the priority. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. In other words, we must strive to enter that rest because we are exposed by the Word of God. God's Word is, is living and active. It always accomplishes the purposes for which God gave it. Not just for the purposes of salvation, also the purpose of judgment. God's Word goes right into us and exposes our hearts. And even if we ignore it, even our hearts are hardened towards it. Well, it exposes us as people of hard hearts, doesn't it? Exposes us as people who who ignore it. And when we ignore God's Word, we, we ignore Him. We must never, never do that. We must never make out that we know better than God. You see, how I treat your Word is how I treat you. If I ignore your Word, I'm ignoring you. If I don't believe your word, I'm mistrusting you. If I disobey your word, I'm disobeying you. And how we treat God's word in our lives is how we treat Him. If we despise it, we despise Him. If we ignore it, we ignore Him. If we misuse it, make it say what it doesn't say, we misquote Him. If we try and twist it, try to explain it away because it's not what we want to hear, and we're, we're mucking around with Him. And that's a very, very serious thing to do. God's Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It opens our hearts. It shows us how we really are. Because how we respond to God's Word shows us, shows God what we really think of Him on the inside. And the God who sees what we're really like on the inside, who sees every thought and motivation of the heart, will judge us by how we respond to it, even our heart of hearts. And so the warning is, don't don't mess around with God's word. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. One generation of Israelites missed out. And on the last day, there will be many people who call themselves Christian to whom Jesus will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You know, oftentimes when people fall away from being a Christian, it's usually because they've been disobedient. Usually there's something they do or they want to do that they know that God doesn't want them to do. Usually it's something, they want to disobey God's word. And instead of giving up on that thing and trusting God, they cling on to that thing and let go of God. Oh, of course, they'll come with all kinds of excuses. Lah. Some of them are intellectual, some of them are social, they conflict with other Christians, some of them say they're just lazy. They'll make, they'll, they'll, what, what the heart desires, the Will choose us and the mind justifies. So the all kinds of justification. But when you dig a little bit, you usually find that the real problem is moral. There's usually an area where they do not want to obey God's word. And my brother, my sister, if you see yourself heading down that path today, then mark my words, you are in real, real danger. The Spirit is warning you. Listen to Him. Trust Him that He knows what He's talking about. When He says something is wrong, it really is wrong. It's the deceitfulness of sin that makes it attractive. It's not not really good for you. Do not be deceived. The Spirit says in 1 Corinthians 6, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Do not fall into sin and wander away. Do not ever renounce the gospel. Because if you do, then there's no salvation left. That is the warning that we receive today. So, brothers and sisters, today God is speaking to us by His Spirit through His Word. What do we do? Number one, we, well, sing for joy. Because He is the rock of our salvation. He's the God who saved us, who is who's our security. And we have every reason to sing, so let's make sure we mean it when we do. Let's worship God in reverence. Let's bow before Him in Jesus and truly worship Him as Lord, which means to listen to His Word and obey Him. Let's determine to live every part of 2015 for His glory. And let's watch our hearts. Lest we fall away in disobedience and lose everything in the end. So sing to the walk, worship in reverence, heed the warning. Well, this psalm was designed to be, to be uh, said or sung by God's people to God's people. So what I'm going to suggest, what do we do, is let's stand up and say this psalm to each other. Shall we do that? All right, let's, let's stand up. Get the page numbers again. What are the page numbers? 499, 499. 599. and 599. Psalm 95. Maybe this side of the room, you swing this way and face this way. This side of the room, you swing this way and face this way. So face each other, right? So this side, face this way. This side, face this way. Okay. Now we speak to each other. And together. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, and kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. We are the people of his his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the rock of our salvation. We thank you that you are the great God, the ruler and creator of everything. And we pray that we will be people who are always joyful at who you are and at what you have done, and always thankful that we belong to you. Thank you that you are our maker. You have made us your people. You are our God. We are your sheep. We are your flock. And help us, we pray, to worship you and obey you. And our Father, we pray that you will help us not only to hear your voice, but to listen and obey. Keep us from hardening of heart. Keep our hearts soft towards you. Keep our hearts ever grateful to Jesus for the salvation you have won for us in him. And keep our hearts always wanting and willing to love and obey him. Keep us, we pray from hardening our hearts and falling away. And help us, we pray, as your people, to heed the warnings you've given us in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.